I'm going to tell you the secret. It's two words. You ready? Notes and acrid. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about how to win at Wordle, but not really. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you're looking for a great volunteer opportunity, Schoolhouse.World is a nonprofit online educational platform that provides free tutoring to children from over 100 countries. Volunteers range from high school students to retired professionals. Founded during the pandemic by Sal Khan of Khan Academy fame, Schoolhouse.World helps learners build confidence, find community, and pay it forward. If you've been living under an internet rock, you might not have discovered Wordle, a word game that's a little bit like that mastermind game we played growing up, but instead of with colors, it's with words in the English language. Wordle just got sold to the New York Times for a gazillion dollars. Here's the thing. If you play notes and then acrid as your first two plays, you will do better than almost anybody at Wordle. And that's because 10 of the common letters that you need to identify are covered by those two words. So by the time you get to the third play, you will be on your way to having a lot of insight as to how to guess next. Okay, fine, but why does this matter? It matters because we're terrible at pathfinding. We're terrible at figuring out how to get from here to there when there isn't a path already marked for us. And the reason we're terrible at it is because the system doesn't want us to be good at it. The status quo is the status quo because it's good at sticking around. And one of the ways it sticks around is by indoctrinating us from a young age. That almost all the time we are in school, we are in school being told what to do. Will this be on the test? There's an assignment. If you can type 80 words a minute and you want to write a standard length novel, well, even with a few minute break every hour and a little bit of time to sleep, you can finish typing that book in less than 24 hours, maybe 30 if you're going to fix the typos. 30 hours to write a whole novel, a best-selling novel. Yeah, except almost nobody writes a best-selling novel in 30 hours. And the reason is that the hard part of writing a novel isn't typing the novel. Typing the novel is a cheap skill, easily replicated. No, the hard part of writing a novel is figuring out which things aren't going to be in your novel, and whatever's left is the novel. It's finding the path. It is exploring. It is about going on journeys that don't work, circling back and then starting over. Lewis and Clark somehow figured out not only how to make it across much of the United States, but split up and then regularly said, we'll meet over here in a few days, and then did. That is a skill. It is something that we can learn to do. And back to Wordle. For me, the Wordle question is this. What good are the hacks and the tips? If you know the exact strategy to win at Wordle. Who benefits? Now you're a cog in the giant Wordle system. 
No, the fun part of Wordle for me is figuring out how to win at Wordle. Please don't tell me the strategy. I want to figure out the strategy. And once I figure out the strategy, I never want to play again because that's why it's a game. It's not a game so that you can prove to somebody that you could beat a computer program. It's a game because the way it feels to find your way through the strategy is the point. As you know, I've been working over the last bunch of months on the Carbon Almanac, which is a community of hundreds and hundreds of people in more than 40 countries who have come together to build an important foundational book, an almanac, that will help people see the foundational truths about our climate. But the thing about this community is that some of the people who showed up didn't stick around. And it's not that they didn't stick around because they didn't care about the issue. They cared very much. It's because when they got there, there was no table of contents. When they got there, there were no sample pages. When they got there, there were no assignments. When they got there, there wasn't a style for the way the images would look. We had to figure all of that out. And so there's this chaos that goes on when we are pathfinding, either alone or in a group. In a group, it's multiplied because it's one thing to say to a group of people, here's how we are going to play this symphony. Here is your part. Here is the conductor. Here we go. And it's quite another for a quartet to get together, trade fours, and play jazz. There are lots of rules about how a quartet plays jazz together, but there isn't a score. There isn't a, and then you'll do this, and then I'll do that. Improv is very challenging. Why? A family friend got into a famous college, and he got there and was destined to become an actor. And he tried out for the improv troupe. And the improv troupe had 10 slots available for incoming freshmen. And he came in 11th. And I said to him, hey, why don't you start your own improv troupe? Because after all, it's not like you need fancy equipment or a coach or a trainer or even a building. Just put some flyers up and start an improv troupe. And he never did. Years later, he has graduated and he never did. Another friend who can afford it really, really wants to make a TV show. But the network didn't pick her, didn't establish the structure, didn't give her something to lean against. And so months and months later, there is no TV show. But why? You can get as much distribution as the big cable networks have for free online tomorrow. Making a video? Making a video costs a tiny fraction of what it used to cost. No, these aren't the hard parts. The hard part is to pick yourself, is to say, I don't know exactly where we are going. I don't know exactly how to get there. But the journey, the journey is both important and non-fatal. And those are the two things that we are looking for. So when we think about this pathfinding opportunity, what we do is we make projects, not follow instructions, because we are discovering ever more so that following instructions is cheap indeed, that there is an instruction follower who will work quickly and cheaply compared to you. No, what we need are people who will figure out how to be wrong on the way to being right. And so when we think about our culture and the big shifts in our culture over the last 30 years, 
Most of them have not been caused by people repeatedly following industrial instructions. That was for the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and maybe the 80s. Build an enterprise. Repeat, repeat, repeat. There's a Dunkin' Donuts on every corner because once you know how to build 10 Dunkin' Donuts, the 11th Dunkin' Donut is not that hard. Most of the people who work at Starbucks or Apple or UPS are following instructions, are turning the crank. The last time Apple launched a groundbreaking new product was many years ago because Tim Cook is in the crank-turning business because turning a crank makes the stock price go up because Wall Street doesn't really like pathfinders. Wall Street likes to pile on after the path has been found. And so if you're an investor, yes, please, please wait until something is working before you invest your life savings in it. But if you're a creator, you don't get to be Google or Starbucks or Apple or any of the other crank-turning companies by simply turning a crank. You get there by becoming a crank until you are proven correct. You get there by showing up and saying, I'm not exactly sure, but I know who I seek to serve and the change I seek to make. Let us be wrong on the way to being right. If we can be wrong without harming anybody, if we can be wrong while staying in the game, if we can be wrong without taking it too personally, in service of the change we seek to make, then we get to do it again. I still remember two adventures from the beginning of my career. The first one, right at the start, I was freshly out of my job. I had moved to New York. I was basically unemployed. I was trying to figure out how to pay the bills and still be independent. And I read a small article about somebody named Faith Popcorn, who insisted that Faith Popcorn was her real name. It wasn't. Faith Popcorn, for a living, put together teams of people, creative people, six or eight, and would go to giant Fortune 500 companies and charge them a ton of money to have this team of people work for a week or two brainstorming innovative new ways to solve their problem. My vague recollection is that Procter & Gamble had hired them to think about toothbrushes. Well, I'm nothing if not interesting in a group of six people trying to solve a creative problem for a week. So I decided... My goal was to be in Faith Popcorn's Rolodex. So how to do that? I was 26 years old. I was mostly unemployed. I wasn't perfectly qualified. I needed both to get her attention, but once I had her attention, to help her see that I was the fifth hammer, somebody who could show up in the room and cause positive change to happen. So I did what anybody would do. I got on my bike, brought my resume to Macy's. On the fifth floor of Macy's, they had a service where they would gift wrap anything you brought them. You didn't have to buy it at Macy's. So I had them gift wrap my resume in a nice box. And I put a card in the front and I rode my bike up to Faith Popcorn's offices and dropped it off. When I got back to where I was living with my wife downtown, the phone was ringing as I walked into the room. Yes, it was Faith Popcorn on the phone. She said, how soon can you get here? So I quickly got rid of my bike clothes threw on a jacket, hopped into a cab I could ill afford, and headed back to Midtown. And I walk in, and there's Faith, and there's her partner, Peter, and we start talking, not for five minutes or 10 minutes, but for probably half an hour. People jumping up and down. People were excited. There was all this energy in the room. Faith said, do you have enough time to be on five of my projects? Because this is exactly what we need. And I should mention that in those days, the amount she paid to be on one of her projects 
was approximately half of what I needed to live for a year. So I just needed one or two projects a year, and I'd be fine. So I went back. Celebrations were in order. I was just waiting to hear from Faith. And a week and two weeks and three weeks went by. And I dropped her a couple notes and called once or twice. Nothing, nothing. And over the next two years, every time I traveled anywhere in the United States to do a gig or to work on something, I would find the ugliest postcard I could from that town and mail it to Faith in her office. And I never heard from Faith Popcorn again. Years and years later, her former partner, Peter, reached out. Would I blurb his book? I said, Peter, I don't blurb books for everybody, but I fondly remember meeting you. But I would like one thing in return. Would you mind telling me what happened? And he said, I have no idea. Faith just changed her mind. But I got to tell you, we had a bulletin board in the office that had nothing on it but the postcards you sent us for a couple years. And I tell that story and the next one because they represent part of the journey to be a Pathfinder. Before my adventure with Faith Popcorn, I was a brand manager at a company called Spinnaker Software. I was the 30th person there. I was in charge of a whole line of software, including the packaging and everything else. Well, the packaging we ended up with was a gatefold. It folded more than a record album, twice as many times, and it wasn't as big as a record album, but it was close. But to keep it closed in the store, we needed some sort of way to affix it, and I didn't want to shrink wrap it because then they wouldn't be able to see the inside of the packaging. So I ordered 10,000 little tiny Velcro dots, 10,000 little dots that were sticky on either side so that the assembly line would be able to put them into the gatefold and keep it closed. Well, I didn't do enough of my homework. It turns out little tiny Velcro dots don't stick very well to laminated, varnished paperboard. And so they were all wasted. Now, the company could easily afford it. I think 10,000 little tiny Velcro dots in those days probably cost $300. And we had a shrink wrap machine and the product went out fine. But between the Velcro dots and the misadventures with Faith Popcorn, it would have been very, very easy to just ask for instructions, to just go to work as a bank teller, to just say, ah, I can't do this. But instead, I used them as fuel. I used them as fuel to realize that failure is the key component to pathfinding. Getting lost is the way to get found. No is no for now. Not because you're going to persist and hustle and hassle people, but because you just learned one more thing that did not work on your way to doing something that does work. Last week, I was in a local hotel, and sometimes in the hotels, you'll see they have a bookshelf to try to show that smart people stay there. And on the bookshelf was Faith Popcorn's best-selling book from all of those years ago, autographed by Faith. And I looked at it, and I held it in my hand, and I was reminded that I was glad I didn't give up, that I was glad I didn't go for the safe, well-lit path. Because interesting problems need to be solved. And if anyone can do it, it's you. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate 
from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Here we go. Hi, Seth. It's Jeff in Milledgeville. I love your podcast, love your uh, listener questions. Uh, so I want you to ask us a question. Let's say you're consulting a small entrepreneurial business. They already have their smallest viable audience already successful at that level. You go in with a consultant, I know, with your list of 100 questions. But what's your very first question you would ask an entrepreneur in that phase? I've had some amazing, surprising uh, questions asked. One was from a marketing consultant that asked, if you uh, grow this business to the point where it needs your wife to come on board, would she quit her career or job to join you? And I answered no, and he says, well, I can't help you. Uh, other questions I've had are, how are you going to handle all the volume of orders you'll get? And uh, that's obviously presupposing from the uh, questioner that the product's going to be an overwhelming success. The third one I've gotten often is more a statement than a question, but it's a comment that somebody's going to steal your idea. And that shows you the mindset of the questioner. Uh, so ask us a question. Uh, what would be the very first thing you would ask an entrepreneur, uh, all of us in your audience? Thanks for what you do, and uh, thanks for making a difference. I'm not a consultant. I've never been a consultant. I don't want to be a consultant. And the main reason is because of this question, which is that when someone hires you for business advice, there's no guarantee that they're going to take it. So you end up doing something that largely doesn't work because the problem is in implementation, not simply in strategy. However, as somebody who sometimes gives free business advice, often to people I care deeply about, the kind of questions I ask are about two things. The first one is this. How much are you willing to change what you do and how you do it to get to where you say you want to go? Because what I have found again and again is that what people really want is to do what they're doing but have it work better. And if that was going to work, it would have worked already. It turns out that if we want to change the outcome, we're going to have to change the inputs. And a lot of us don't want to. We don't want to give up certain things. We don't want to focus on other things. We don't want to change the value proposition. 
What we really want is the world to bend to our will, and largely, that doesn't happen. And then the second question is, what would you need to know, or what resources would you need to have available to you to be able to do the changes that you said you're willing to do? What would help you understand? What would help you gain the confidence to go ahead and make those changes? Because it's almost certain you already know the answer. There are plenty of other institutions that you can look at. There are competitors in other cities or in other industries or in your industry that did a thing and got an outcome. You could do that, but you haven't done that. Are you looking for reassurance? Are you looking for proof? What will it take for you to believe what you need to believe in order to take action? So I hope that's not too picky or pedantic, but if you don't have answers to those questions, it really doesn't pay to hire a consultant at all. Grüezi Seth, this is Urs Frey from Zurich, Switzerland. I've got a question about two topics that you are often talking about, enrollment and the minimum viable audience. If we deliver a good product, then happy customers will talk about it and recommend our cause to others. Now, in your view, is it legitimate for us to explicitly ask our audience for recommendations or to encourage them with tools such as flyers for such recommendations? I'm somewhat conflicted in my feelings here. On the one hand, I think it makes perfect sense to provide such tools. And on the other hand, I personally feel more and more resistance these days. For example, when a survey starts fishing for compliments with the initial question such as, how likely are you to recommend us? I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you very much for your work. I'm experiencing your podcast and blog articles as very inspiring and motivating. Thank you. Thank you for this question. I think we have to be really careful when we talk about smallest viable audience because it's a very specific tactic and approach and strategy all in one. What you're asking about is, is it socially okay to encourage people to share? We begin with this. Just because something is good, just because something has quality, just because something is excellent, just because something is a great value, doesn't mean that people are going to share it. In fact, it's likely that they won't. Because we don't spend our time and our energy and our cultural influence sharing things just because we're trying to be generous. We do it because it's a story we tell ourselves about who we are and because it's a story other people, we think, will tell themselves about who we are. If you're the kind of person that gets pleasure out of always sharing the new technological innovation, you're probably getting that pleasure because it makes you look, at some level, smart or connected or generous or insightful to the people you're sharing it with. That stupid videos spread really fast on the internet because people get a certain joy from spreading a certain kind of video. So I'm going to begin by highlighting that things might not spread because they're good. They simply spread 
because it benefits the spreader. So with that said, by giving them an easy link, by giving them something that's pre-written, by encouraging them, by modeling it, what you are doing, if it works, is something inherently generous, which is you are saying to people, if you're going to gain something from sharing this, I'm going to make it easier for you to do that. People aren't going to share it because you did that, but they are more likely to share it in certain situations because you did that. Of course, there are luxury brands and other sorts of ideas that would spread slower if you acknowledged that they could be spread. That one of the best ways to get people to talk about how you did a magic trick is to swear, make them swear, that they won't tell anyone how you did the magic trick because the very fact that you made it hard for them to share is precisely why they want to share it. So I guess it's a long way around of saying, you really don't know if it's going to work till you try it. And if you are doing it in a way that is generous to them, not only to you, most people are going to be glad you did. Hey, Seth, this is Stephen from San Francisco. I just finished listening to your most recent podcast, which happened to be a replay of something you pulled from your archives. Now, I might be mistaken, but I think this is something that you very rarely do. So it's a perfect opportunity for me to ask you a question about something I've always wanted to know. And that is, what are your thoughts about repurposing content? More specifically, why don't you repurpose more of yours? What's preventing you from taking your content, which is amazingly valuable and mostly evergreen, and maybe recording it and putting it on one of the various platforms? Is it because of choice? Is it because of something else? I would love to hear your thoughts on repurposing content and your thought process behind not putting more of your older stuff out there into the world. Bottom line, I just love to hear more of what you've created. Thanks for all that you continue to do. I love and appreciate you. Thank you very much. This is really insightful, and it highlights a disconnect between commercial success and having a big impact and many of the choices that I have made in my career post-Yo-Yo Nine, which is that I haven't organized my intellectual property or my day to reach the largest possible number of people or to have the maximum amount of income. I've instead shared because I enjoy sharing, because I have something to say, but I don't want to spend a lot of time deciding to say something that I've already said before just because it's good for the business. Because I don't work for the business. Sometimes the business works for me. So don't do what I do think about what I say. And what I'm trying to say is, if you want an idea to spread, you have to make it really simple and you have to repeat yourself and then repeat yourself and then repeat yourself. And as Jay Levinson said, stop repeating yourself, not when you get bored or when your spouse gets bored. Stop repeating yourself when your accountant gets bored. That the great brands, the Nikes and the Starbucks and go down the list, the Oprahs, the great brands don't come out with a big new idea every day or every week or every month. They repeat themselves and they repeat themselves and they repeat themselves because the market isn't listening to you as carefully as you think it is. And you are way more likely to bore yourself before you bore everybody else. So I guess it depends on the outcome you're seeking. I embrace this privilege I have of having an audience that wants to hear something new from me and so I tell them something new. That is not the same as saying, how am I going to maximize the profit of every interaction I have? 
Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it first. Check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.